as followers of Christ, those who have received Christ as our Savior and have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we are called to live for God's kingdom, recognizing that we live in God's kingdom and therefore we're called to live for his kingdom. Live with him as our king. But we live in a world that opposes God's rule. This is a challenge, of course. I was uh, reminded of this very profoundly reading an article this past week about a school board, a a, uh, school board in Arizona who many of its members of the school board were disheartened to find that they had student teachers that were coming and were, were doing their student teaching work in their school board that came from Arizona Christian University. And these school board members took specific issue with statements that were on this Christian University's website. But for followers of Christ, these statements are no-brainers. One of the school board members was quoted as saying, <clears throat> my concerns are when, is when have to do with I go to Arizona Christian University's website. They are committed to Jesus Christ accomplishing his will and advancements on earth as it is in heaven. We're like, Uh, yeah. But this is an example of the challenge that we face today as followers of Christ called to live for God's kingdom in a world that opposes God's rule as their king. The fact is, is that we have been taught even by our Lord Jesus to pray that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is done in heaven. We've also been told and encouraged, maybe even you could say warned, by our Lord Jesus in Matthew 19, 21. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold And will inherit eternal life. Speaking of the reward that will be ours in eternity. Many of you I know. Have experienced. Leaving family. Or having family leave you. Because you desire to follow your Lord. We step back into Matthew, and I wanted to help you recall Matthew's summary of Jesus' teaching and how it was about the kingdom of God being here and now, proclaiming the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Matthew summarizes this public ministry of Jesus's. With these statements, in Matthew 4, verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And then Matthew spends the next verses 18 through 22, as Pastor Jeff covered last week, giving his first account of Jesus calling his disciples to come and follow him as their rabbi. And then Matthew summarizes also in verse 23 of chapter 4, Jesus' public ministry. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And we're told in verse 25 that great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So leading into chapter 5, which, which begins what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, we know that Jesus has been, he's, he is collecting crowds of people, even though this is a summary statement of all of Jesus' public ministry, crowds of people, even as we see in the beginning of chapter 5, are, are beginning to gather around him, some because of the miracles, some for the teaching. He has called disciples to allow him to be their rabbi, and he has also gathered other disciples that have chosen to follow him as their rabbi, some with greater or lesser degree of commitment to him. And we begin to look this morning at one of Matthew's five discourses. I, I, uh, studying great, uh, deeper into uh, the gospel of Matthew, uh, I've I come to agree with it is being called an amazing piece of art, of literature. Really, what if, if there is in our scripture the systematic theology of our Savior and Lord Jesus, the book of Matthew is that. And specifically, the systematic theology of God's kingdom with Jesus as its king. And with it, within the Gospel of Matthew, there are five discourses, five major blocks of teaching that Jesus gives, and we step into the first of those this morning, and we're beginning to see what is the good news of Jesus' kingdom. Jesus' good news of the kingdom is for his disciples as well as for the crowds. And so that makes it somewhat complicated, similar to when we were in the book of Hebrews. We kind of have to stop and say, okay, for those who were just listening in to try to kind of figure out who is this guy, Jesus, it, this information is hitting them in this way. For those who have signed on and they are following him as their Savior and Lord, it is hitting them in this way. And so we'll find ourselves doing that quite a bit too. But during our time in Matthew, and for your life, for the, for the rest of your life, God invites you to allow Jesus to renew your mind as your teacher. Allow Jesus to renew your mind as your teacher. We see that Matthew 5 opens up this section, Matthew 5 through 7, known as the Sermon on the Mount, as I mentioned, opens up with saying, seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. So we see Jesus is not, this is not one of those situations where he sees the crowd, and he wants to pull his disciples away from the crowd. 
he sees the crowd. He goes up onto the mountain in order to speak in a way that the crowd can hear him. But he also has the disciples sitting at his feet and he's teaching them. You see how we've got multiple audiences going on here. A Jewish teacher would stand to read the scriptures in public, but they would sit to explain them. Usually with their disciples sitting at their feet. This is what a Jewish rabbi would do. This is what we would anticipate is going on at this time. And and think of a situation with those closest to him having committed to follow him. These are his disciples. And those further away being the crowds, curious, some amazed, but mostly on the fence of whether or not this guy really is the Messiah. Kind of a what's he going to do for me mentality. You can expect from many of them. It was normal for a disciple to live close to and travel with their rabbi. And the goal would be that their rabbi would rub off on them. Rub off on their disciple. And this disciple then would slowly think more and more like their rabbi. Slowly live every part of their life like their rabbi. And we'll see very quickly that Jesus was different than all other rabbis. And we'll hear uh, at different times that the crowds, the, the disciples even, were amazed by Jesus because he taught with authority. He taught with an authority that that isn't prone to say, well, I don't know anything about that. You'll have to ask somebody else about that. Or isn't prone to say, well, you know, that's not really what I deal with. No, his authority in his teaching would penetrate every area of life. Would drill deep into even the thoughts of the mind even into the intentions of their hearts, that kind of authority. But you can have that authority when you're the author. We'll see very quickly that Jesus was different than other rabbis. His teaching is different in that it penetrates every area of life, the living word doing as the written word does, cutting between soul and spirit. Also, we'll see that he is different in that he, his teaching is different in that it, it, his life is completely in sync with his claims and with his challenges. We'll see him warn others of the teachers of the law, and he'll tell them, you, uh, you might listen to what they say, but don't do what they do. That's not the case with Jesus. That's part of the reason why his disciples and, his, and his, the crowds are amazed by him. Jesus' life speaks God's truth, as well as his words. Not only do we get to where uh, we learn from the lessons that God teaches from his very mouth in the Gospels, we also get to see the truth lived out by the one who is the way and the truth and the life. You know, certain vehicles are known for being really bad for being able to see, uh, for the driver to be able to see, say, if a, if a car is, is uh, where they want to move into the other lane. Or to, to see if you're backing out of your driveway. We call these blind spots. <clears throat> Apparently, the Chevy Camaro 
The latest Chevy Camaro is one of the worst for this. It has to do with the uh, trunk being up high and, and the, the uh, columns in the back being particularly wide. And, and so if I were to go out, I, I don't know why in the world I would consider test driving a Chevy Camaro. I can't afford one. But if I were to go out and, de and decide, to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go, t you know, I want to buy a Chevy Camaro. And I go to one dealership and I test drive one and I'm like, ah, that's got really bad blind spots. Uh, let me drive another one. And they're like, uh, it's all going to be the same. I don't believe you. So I'm going to go to the next dealership. I'm going to drive another Chevy Camaro. And they're like, that's got really bad blind spots too. Well, of course. They're all made from the same pattern, right? Well, we also talk about people having blind spots, right? Blind spots for people are, under, are, are, are places in our lives that need attention, but we just don't see them. It's common for disciples to have the same blind spots as their teachers. Just like every one of those Camaros is going to have the same blind spot because it comes from the same plan. It's common for disciples to have the same blind spots as their teachers. This is why it's, it's dangerous to say, I love that preacher. I listen to all of his podcasts. I've got all of his sermons. Guess what? You're going to have the same blind spots as that teacher has. Jesus has no blind spots. He has no blind spots whatsoever. And discipleship should always be one follower of Christ simply helping another follower of Christ follow Jesus. Guess what uh, Kenley and Ellie did this morning? They followed Jesus. In baptism. Because as we, as we learned about earlier in Matthew, he was baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. And he was, he was done, that was done so, so that we could follow him. As Paul wrote, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's what discipleship is to be. Allow Jesus to teach you the standards of his kingdom. This is kind of a wet your whistle message here this morning as far as what we will be learning of the standards of God's kingdom in Matthew 5 through 7. So what is the draw of motivational speakers? They're going to help you be the person you all, were always intended to be. Have the life you deserve, right? The, your best life now. You can finally be happy if you just do what I say. Sadly, the, the, the problem with motivational speakers today is they are saying all the problems are out there and the answer is in here. But we know from Scripture that what God over and over again is telling us, all the problems are in here. And the answer comes from outside of us. The answer comes from outside of our world. The answer comes from God that he gives us in Christ. Jesus teaches that true happiness actually flows from attaching ourselves to God through a gospel relationship. So prepare your heart. I want to encourage you to prepare your heart to allow Jesus to redefine your idea of happiness. We'll see this next week as we dive into what's called the Beatitudes.
Blessed are the poor in spirit, he starts with, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This term blessed, the best way for me to explain it, and we'll get into this more next week, is eternally happy. Those who are eternally happy are these. And I don't mean eternally as in after you die. I mean a happiness that begins now and lasts for eternity. Typically this term was, wasn't even used for human beings. People living on this earth, it would describe the joy that was reserved for mythological gods. Or for people that had reached heaven or paradise already. To be blessed like this means an inner satisfaction, a sufficiency that's not dependent on circumstances. This is why before Jesus spoke of it this way, this kind of happiness was reserved for those that had finally been lifted off of this earth because how can you be happy in this way on this earth? Not dependent on earthly circumstances. It reaches deeper than anything that outward circumstances can cause. Allow Jesus to redefine your idea of happiness. And also Jesus starts with turning the pathway to happiness on its head through these beatitudes, as we'll get into more next week. But his Jewish listeners were mostly expecting God to do what they thought he promised to do. Peace and earthly prosperity through military conquest. That's what they were looking for. But Jesus promises great blessing in response to poverty in spirit, to being grieved, to being meek, to being hungry. And the satisfaction isn't earthly wealth or prosperity or even comfort, even physical comfort. As one writer says, as we read the Beatitudes, we find that they represent an outlook radically different from that of the world. The world praises pride, not humility. The world endorses sin, especially if you get away with it, end quote. We'll focus on these pathways to blessing next week. But for this week, I want to point out that the first of these Beatitudes is the doorway to the others. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Being poor in spirit is the first step to knowing Christ. Being poor in our spirit means to recognize that we are spiritually bankrupt. And we have nothing to give to God in order to gain His immeasurable riches of grace. So when we come to God for salvation, when we come to God for forgiveness, when we come to God for a relationship with our Creator, we are asking for His immeasurable riches. And we have nothing but bankruptcy. We are bankrupt in spirit. Recognition of that is the narrow gate of salvation. 
You see how this first of the Beatitudes, and I've got to be careful that we don't get into it too much here this morning. The first of the th- these Beatitudes is the do- doorway to the others. Think of the Pharisee, the, the par- the, well, Jesus taught a parable about um, two men that were standing in the temple praying. One a Pharisee, one who would be considered one of the most righteous of the Jewish leaders, and the other a tax collector, one who would be considered, which Matthew was before he came to Christ, would be considered a traitor of their people. And Jesus teaches this, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And he then goes on to list off all the things that he does for God, as if to say, I've got plenty to offer God. But Jesus goes on to say, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus took his listeners' understanding of the pathway to happiness and turned it on its head and told them this, I tell you, This man, speaking of the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. And it's an illustration that he gives us of what it means to recognize that we are poor in spirit. We have nothing to offer God. As the song says, nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling. I want to challenge you as a part of this to prepare your heart to allow Jesus to redefine your idea of happiness. Now, I studied Matthew early in my walk with Christ. I don't know why. I was maybe 16 or so. I had my um, Strong's Concordance out on my bed. I can remember sitting there kneeling by my bed with my Bible and my Strong's Concordance. And I was confronted with the ethics of following Christ. I was confronted with the standard of what it means to please God as a follower of Christ. I was confused when I read Matthew 5:48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's basically how Jesus summarizes his first big section of the Sermon on the Mount. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I realized right from the start, even as a 16-year-old, the double message of Jesus' teachings here. One, if you're going to have a relationship with God on your own, you'll have to meet God's perfect standard. You'll have to be perfect as he is perfect. Good luck. Secondly, Jesus can meet that perfect standard for you. But it requires repentance and faith in him, which begins with recognizing there's no way I can do it. I am bankrupt in spirit. 
These reflect the double meaning of the standards of God's kingdom. Along these lines, I want to challenge you to get ready to allow Jesus to reset your standard of righteousness. That is what he is going to do throughout his Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to tell you something. It's going to get to meddling really quickly. When Jesus says, you've heard it say, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I tell you, any person that looks on, any man that looks on a woman with lust for her in his heart has committed adultery in his heart. It's like, Lord, hold on a second. You're, you're like, you're talking about my thoughts here? You're talking about things that I feel like I can't even control? That's a mark against me? Allow Jesus to reset your standard of righteousness. You can see how it's got, you know, both of these crowds in, in mind here. One, the, th- the, the crowd that thinks that they are good enough to have a relationship with God, he, Jesus is saying, okay, so by this teaching, yeah, you haven't committed adultery. You can mark that off. on. You can get that pen on your, on your vest. But really, God's real standard of righteousness that you're going to have to meet gets into the thoughts of your mind. So, so that's, that's his message to that crowd. But his message to his disciples is, let's work on this together. Let's grow together. Let's even let me get into the thoughts of your mind and change you. He says this twice in in, uh, in a almost uh, elevated process in verse 20 of chapter 5. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, some of the most righteous people of their culture by, by the law's standard, unless it exceeds that, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then as I mentioned in verse 48, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, let me address this from the side of being a disciple of Jesus, sitting at the rabbi's feet, a follower of Christ, not not the, this is a narrow gate message to the crowd, okay? Many believe that the concept of these verses are the key to Jesus' ethical teachings here. These two statements here uh, of raising the bar to a place where it will never be met on this earth for us. It strikes people in two ways. For the, as I mentioned, the listener in the crowd, he's holding up his required standard of perfect righteousness. But for his follower, he's pointing to the spot way over the horizon. And he's saying, walk with me. Let's walk in that direction. Take my hand. Let me carry your burden. Let me empower you. We've got a lifetime of a journey together. We call this growing in godliness. Becoming a godly man. Becoming a godly woman. With his speaking these words, one writer says, 
Conformity to the character of God is now affirmed as the goal of the disciple of Jesus. Conformity to the very character of God is now confirmed and established as the goal of the disciple of Jesus. This is what Jesus has planned for us as a church family, right? Ephesians 4 tells us that he gives, has historically given certain offices to his church for this purpose, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, now catch this, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That's a, that's a high standard. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. This is, this is the theme of the New Testament. That we are to be allowing God to reset, to redefine, to allow Jesus to reset our standard of righteousness and walk with him both individually and corporately together toward that spot on the horizon that's always just over the horizon during this earthly life. Imagine you're, you decide that you're going to backpack a 200-mile trail. So you get yourself a guide. You get yourself somebody. You're paying someone, enlisted them to keep you moving, to keep you focused, to keep you motivated. And you happen to make the mistake of getting a very, very fit, very, very uh, proficient backpacking guide. All right, and <clears throat> he is the most physically fit backpacker in the world, you find out. And every time you hit the trail, he ends up full pack, full sprint, running around the next bend in the trail. And you're like, what is this guy doing at first when he starts doing this? And you pick up your pace, and you're worried, and you're like, I, I'm, never, I'm not going to find him. I'm not going to catch up. And you get around that bend of the trail, and there he is sitting there. He says, good, you caught up. Let's go. And he takes off again, sprinting around the next bend in the trail. And after hiking with him for the whole 200 miles, you find that he's inspired you. He's empowered you. He is, has improved your physical ability. You're in the best shape of your life. This is what it's like to walk with God. But God is our perfect guide. He's perfection itself. And thankfully, he's everywhere, right? And while he's running on ahead of us in the person of Christ, he's also walking next to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. While he's calling us to run full sprint as best we can with a full pact, he's also lifting the weight of our burden. He's giving us only what we can manage in his strength. 
I felt the weight of this calling of following Christ this week. I don't usually share from my personal journal, but I just felt like the Lord wanted me to here. Two entries that I made this week studying over um, these passages. <clears throat> One is I, praying to the Lord, I wrote, every role that I concentrate on, my marriage, my career, my citizenship, my friends, my family, whatever role I have that I might move in, you, Lord, have a standard for me to live in that role that lives out of my relationship with you as my king. This can either hang over me like an impossible standard, be holy as your heavenly father is holy, or it can be a standard that I enjoy pursuing in the power and assurance of your presence. Another entry I wrote, Lord, I am starting to preach through Matthew 5 through 7, and I feel like I am a poor representation of the high calling and the high commands that I find here. Please use your word to change me. Holy Spirit, don't pass over me, giving me only insight into theology and biblical history. Please change me from the inside out in a profound way to better walk in the kingdom of God. Allow my life to be more and more lived in submission to the reality of it, moment by moment. Follow me as I follow Christ. Let's bow our heads. Father, I remember what uh, our friend Joe Hummerickhouse told us. Following Christ isn't just difficult, it's impossible. It is impossible without the power of your spirit. It is impossible without it being done in relationship with you, in communion with you. It is impossible if it is just treated as a standard that hangs over us that we will never reach rather than a map that is laid out below us to walk with you through. Lord, our thoughts don't measure up to the thoughts of Jesus. Our attitudes don't measure up to the attitudes of Jesus. What we consider blessing, what we consider um, life, what we consider life-giving does not measure up. Lord God, I I pray that you would protect my, my family, my friends here from discouragement that the enemy is going to want to do as we see the high standards of your kingdom. Lord, I pray that we would be able to walk through these truths in relationship with you. That you would move us further along over your horizon together and corporately.
Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.